Hello scholars, this is the professor speaking, and I welcome you to Hi, That's Scary, a podcast that utilizes the effects of cannabis to analyze horror cinema. The title of today's lecture is Making the Case for Jennifer Check. Jennifer's Body is a 2009 movie written by Diablo Cody and directed by Karen Kasama. The film stars Megan Fox as Jennifer and Amanda Seyfried as Needy. The strains used during the note-taking and film-watching process was Purple Train Wreck Crumble and strawberry cough in a cartridge. Both of these are sativa strains and both have effects on creativity and enthusiasm, which is why I chose it for this. Most of the strains that will be mentioned will likely be sativa strains simply because I find that helps me best analyze these films. It may work differently for you, If you are a smoker, I don't know. So let's do a brief rundown and history with Jennifer's body. The film is about a girl named Jennifer who gets possessed by a demon and kills people. And her best friend has to figure out a way to stop her. Just that bare-bones concept can make a really interesting film. And Jennifer's Body is a really interesting film. But it's had some issues. Let's start with the Amazon plot summary. When small-town school-hottie Jennifer is possessed by a hungry demon, guys who never stood a chance with her, take on a new luster in the light of Jennifer's insatiable appetite. The movie covers that are available when you look at it to stream usually involve Jennifer wearing a cheerleader uniform with tousled hair, and a tiny bit of blood in the corner of her mouth. The other one that I've seen is Megan Fox sitting at a school desk in a crop top, plaid skirt, and I believe heels, which I'm going to say now, that outfit never happens in the film. She never wears that. So I always thought it was weird that that was included because it's a very sexy outfit. I personally think it's actually a very cute outfit. But it's not in the movie, so I don't understand why that's being used as cover art. I don't make these decisions. Maybe that's why I don't understand them. So we move on from the movie covers and we get to the movie trailer. I don't know if you've seen the trailer or remember the trailer from when the movie was coming out. I do, but I still made sure to re-watch it ahead of making this lecture. And that trailer was very sexually charged. Half of the trailer is of Megan Fox looking as sexy as possible. They show her walking sexily, speaking in a sexy manner. They show her actually being a demon, which is the central plot of the movie, for very short amounts of time. Basically, you'll see her sexy. And then for a second or two see the demon. I can understand that decision 
if they wanted to preserve the scares, but it didn't really work because the scenes that they chose to put in the trailers were the main kill scenes. They decide to show her as a demon in the trailer when she's killing people. So you kind of have an idea going in on when a kill is going to happen, which spoils the movie. They also play up the sexual tension between Jennifer and Needy a lot. But it's done in a way that's very clearly fan service. They're trying to show this sexual tension in a way through the trailer that would appeal to teenage boys in the late 2000s. And that was a problem with a lot of the marketing, as we could see by the Amazon plot summary, by the movie covers, and by the trailer. And even before I had rewatched the trailer, from what I could remember when this movie came out, the sex appeal was what was really focused on. Not the story, but how hot Megan Fox could look while killing people. And then the movie came out. And it was... Not that. You see, what had happened was this movie came out and people went to see it. And it was really not straight. As in, the focus was not so much on Megan Fox being sexy and killing people, though that was still present, but on the relationship between Jennifer and Needy. Now, this movie bombed. It made money, but it has a 45% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes and an even lower audience score. Diablo Cody was ridiculed for how she wrote dialogue, and Megan Fox was treated horribly. This was also around the time that she started getting into that beef with Michael Bay, which now, looking back on, she was justified. But that definitely tied in. Between then, its release, and now, Jennifer's body has risen to be considered by some a cult classic. That brings us to today, scholars. I have rewatched this movie while very, very high and took some detailed notes. And with those notes, I came to some conclusions. Let's discuss. We open the film with a shot of Jennifer lying on her bed and Needy in a voiceover stating the iconic line, Hell is a teenage girl. We continue to see Needy is an immensely... We continue to see Needy is in a mental institution and what is known as a quote-unquote kicker. I think that title speaks for itself, though the movie graciously provides us with an example. In the simplest of terms, Needy kicked the shit out of a doctor and got sent to solitary for it. Muzak is playing through a speaker and Needy declares that she quote-unquote hates this song. We then transition to the main story being told here, Needy being an occasional narrator throughout the film. The story takes place in a town known as Devil's Kettle. It is called that because of their waterfall. Some of this waterfall drops into a huge hole in the rocks and it disappears. 
They've sent scientists and dropped numerous things down the hole, and it hasn't resurfaced again. Please note, this is the only time we see her in this cheer uniform. It doesn't come up again for the entire movie, and I honestly find it hilarious considering the marketing. Jennifer's cheerleading. It's a pep rally. She's doing her cheer thing. Routine? Do cheerleaders call it routines? I was never a cheerleader, so I don't know. Any cheerleaders that are listening, let me know. Also, cheerleading is a sport. During Jennifer's routine, Needy waves to her, and Jennifer waves back. Needy then gets called a lesbian by a girl sitting behind her. Needy's last name is also Lesnicki, which was a bit on the nose to me, but I can still appreciate it. This is when the cannabis really started kicking in, so I noticed some things about this moment. Her smile widens. She bunches up her shoulders so they are nearly touching her face. Her neck constricts with this movement and waves with energy. When she turns away from Needy to the rest of the crowd, her smile isn't as bright. It doesn't reach her eyes anymore. Her wave is more methodical, structured, whereas before it was jerky and quick. She's back into her routine. So that level of enthusiasm was only for Needy. After this is when I really started focusing in on body language. After the pep rally, Jennifer goes up to Needy to ask her to go out that night to Melody Lane to see a band. As they're talking, Jennifer is moving in ways many would see as sexy. They're very fluid motions that intentionally push out her chest. When Needy originally turns her down, she pouts. Needy finally agrees, and then Jennifer starts chewing on her best friend forever necklace and looks Needy up and down as she says, wear something cute, okay? And the way she says this is with a lowered voice and I would say sultry tone. She didn't sound annoyed or demanding with that statement. It sounded flirtatious. After this, we see Needy getting ready with her boyfriend Chip in the room. He's clearly voicing his displeasure at Needy going out with Jennifer instead of spending time with him. As they're having this discussion, Needy somehow senses when Jennifer is nearby and declares so. Chip asks how she knew Jennifer was there. And right as he asks that question, Jennifer calls out to Needy from downstairs. This I found really establishes their bond and some possible telepathy already between them. He even says that they have nothing in common and Needy disagrees with him. Needy and Chip go downstairs and Needy and Jennifer end up in this little play fight. This play fight turns into Jennifer getting really rough with Needy out of seemingly nowhere. And it immediately made me think of that terrible saying, he only does that because he likes you when a boy pushes a girl on the playground. Basically, Jennifer doesn't know how to say she likes Needy, so she pushes her hard in front of her boyfriend instead. Don't do that, by the way. That is not how you communicate that you like someone. Jennifer just doesn't know how to do that healthily, which is a problem with a lot of teen interactions because adults have not properly shown what is 
and is not appropriate forms of communication to their children. And the cycle continues. But I digress. The pair end up at Melody Lane, which is where Low Shoulder is playing. Spoiler alert, they're dicks. Anyway, Jennifer and Needy are at the bar, casually pointing out random people, such as Craig, who wants to sleep with Jennifer, and Ahmet, the Indian exchange student. We then get to meet Pedo Chris Pratt. And I call him that because no matter how many times I watch this movie, I can never remember his name. His, char- his character is a guy that is definitely out of high school. I'm guessing 21 by the beer he's holding. And is carrying on a sexual relationship with Jennifer. A minor. There's no definite age given in the film, but I'm pretty sure she's not a freshman. And if they were seniors, there would be at least some college talk between Needy and Chip. So I can only conclude that Jennifer is between the ages of 15 and 17. I personally always thought she was about 16. A 21-year-old having a sexual relationship with a 16-year-old is inappropriate at the least. And I will say this now, if I see one comment about age of consent laws, you will be blocked with the swiftness. Jennifer even angrily tells Needy about an incident with pedo Chris Pratt that was just described in a very rapey way. So that's setting off bells in my head because Jennifer's behavior makes sense if you look at it through the lens of Jennifer being a victim of sexual abuse. She's being groomed by this man who has sexually abused her. She's hypersexual and has issues conveying emotions healthily. She needs to be in control. All signs. After this is when we really get the ball rolling in this movie. Low Shoulder meets Jennifer and Needy. And the lead singer strikes up a conversation with Jennifer. When Jennifer leaves to go get them drinks from the bar and Needy is off to the sidelines, the band members of Low Shoulder start questioning loudly if Jennifer is a virgin. Needy overhears, walks over to them, and tells them Jennifer is a virgin as a way to tell them to back off, which always seemed weird to me. Like, Just tell them to stop speaking about your friend like that. Don't just blurt out that your very not virginal friend is a virgin. It's such a strange lie. Jennifer comes back. The show starts. And Jennifer ends up in this almost trance-like state, which indicates that the band already had some supernatural abilities. Then the bar catches fire. It's obvious that the band intentionally started the fire by their behavior, so they'd be able to grab their virgin sacrifice easily and have no witnesses. And they do! Needy and Jennifer escape the fire, and Jennifer gets into Low Shoulders' van. This part always bothered me, because Needy and Jennifer have this interaction where Needy protests and begs Jennifer not to get into the van with them. Jennifer tells her to stop. And that's it. That's all it takes for her to stop. Needy just lets her get into the van by herself. She doesn't insist on going with her. 
Nor does she call the police on these adult men taking away her friend in their van. I'm not sure if this is a universal rule, but my friends and I have a general rule when we go out. We go together, we leave together. No one gets left behind, and no one gets left alone. This is very common in friendships with women and feminine presenting people. Simply because when you're alone, you're a target. So the fact that Needy left Jennifer alone in a van with, I want to say, five, four or five adult men after the local bar burned to the ground and they witnessed people die... It just, it doesn't make sense to me. It blows my mind. Because how can you say this person is your best friend, but then not do everything in your power to protect them in this situation? And I understand Needy is a teenager. Things get crazy and caught up in the moment. But she didn't even call the cops. And I think that's why I'm so hard on her, because she she has her cell phone. She goes home, and she calls her boyfriend on her cell phone. But she doesn't call the cops. I can understand not having much faith in the police, but... Jennifer is an upper-middle-class, popular white girl. And needy... While shown to be of a lower class I would say at the very least working class is also a white girl it would have been very easy to get someone out to get Jennifer I truly believe that this decision Nini's decision to not take proper action is what leads to the breakdown of their friendship. Now, I just mentioned Needy going home and calling her boyfriend. She's on the phone with Chip when she hears noise downstairs. And she goes to investigate, eventually hanging up on Chip and deciding that no one's there. Remember how earlier... I mentioned that Needy could tell when Jennifer was nearby. After the ritual, Jennifer went to Needy's house. And Needy didn't know she was there until she sees Jennifer covered in blood in her kitchen. Jennifer is clearly in shock and now obviously possessed after vomiting black, spiky goo all over the floor and making this guttural howling noise beforehand. She's openly sexual with Needy. Jennifer presses Needy against the wall and whispers in her ear in a way that is both sensual and scary. Needy is obviously scared, but also very concerned for her friend. Jennifer leaves. Needy has to clean up her kitchen. We are now on the train to Murder Town. I'm finally getting to the kills, folks. They established Jennifer as being very emotionally manipulative as a way to lure in her prey. The first time we actually see Jennifer kill someone is with a football player named Jonas. Jonas was seen hysterically sobbing over his best friend Craig dying in the fire at Melody Lane. He's standing on the football field and Jennifer walks up to him and she entices him to come into the woods with her by saying, his dead best friend thought they'd make a good couple. 
so he follows her. When they're making out in the woods and she takes off her top, Jonas is surprised, but not enthusiastic. It's clear that this interaction with Jennifer isn't so much about him wanting to sleep with her, but wanting to dull the pain of losing his best friend. Another way you could read that, which I've certainly thought about, is that perhaps Jonas had feelings for Craig. Or, you could see this as an uncommon view of positive male friendships. And I say that because men aren't really allowed to show emotion. But Jonas is sobbing about his friend. And that's completely understandable. We never see that in film, though. We never see a teenage boy crying over his dead friend in the way that we see Jonas crying over Craig. So that leads to the thought that perhaps Jonas is queer and likes Craig. Liked Craig because he's now dead. Just a thought. Jonas is being emotionally manipulated by Jennifer due to this. Jennifer, after taking her top off, eats him and leaves his body in the woods to be discovered by J.K. Simmons. Yes, J.K. Simmons is in this movie and he has a claw hand. I'm not going to bring it up again. It doesn't have that much relevance to the analysis, but I think it's a cool fact. Needy tries talking to Chip about her concerns for Jennifer, and Chip immediately dismisses her. He doesn't want to hear about it because he doesn't like Jennifer. Jennifer calls Needy and tries to tell her about her powers, but Needy dismisses Jennifer, like how Chip did to her, in favor of talking to Chip. Jennifer lashes out at Needy for not listening by bringing up Chip in a sexual manner. Once again, trouble properly communicating her emotions. The next victim is Colin, who Jennifer emotionally manipulates as well. Colin asks Jennifer out, and she initially declines. Needy mentioned that she thought Colin was cool, and Jennifer then decides she wants to go out with him. The two girls are viewing this action through two different perspectives, in my opinion. Jennifer interprets this action as a way to get Needy's attention while a needy is viewing this as a way for Jennifer to show dominance over her. This would be solved with communication. We get treated to this wonderfully done scene, going back and forth between needy and Chip and Jennifer and Colin. While watching this scene, all I could think is that Jennifer planned this. This scene involves Needy and Chip leading up to and engaging in coitus and switching to Colin meeting up with Jennifer and Jennifer murdering him. Jennifer timed her killing Colin so that Needy would feel it while she was having sex with Chip. Jennifer was jealous that Needy kept choosing Chip over her, and being a demon would know about that telepathic link they share. This was definitely planned, but it also highlighted an issue I have with Chip. Chip is a bad boyfriend. He repeatedly dismissed Needy whenever she brought up Jennifer because he didn't like the fact that Needy was so close with her. In the beginning of the movie, 
He tried insisting they had nothing in common, arguing when Needy said otherwise. But the icing on the cake was this scene. Because while Chip and Needy are having sex, Needy gets the telepathic link to Colin's murder and is very clearly in distress. Chip, being the most inattentive partner ever, keeps going, not looking at his girlfriend or realizing the noises she's making sound much more scared than pleasured. He only stops when she screams in terror, and he has the audacity to ask if it's because he's too big. I shit you not, he actually asked her that. That line was the line that made me hate Chip. And it was the scene that convinced me that Jennifer doesn't like Chip, not only because he was taking Needy away from her, but because she knew he was a terrible boyfriend while doing so. Chip also displays more bad boyfriend traits further along in the film. After Needy has her freak out at seeing slash feeling Colin get murdered, she races home. She goes to her room, she lays in her bed, and she finds Jennifer there. Fresh from a feeding, Jennifer is openly sexual with Needy again. She eventually decides to tell Needy what happened after the fire, displaying that her previous sexually charged actions were a wall to keep from having to be vulnerable. Jennifer tells Needy of how the band sacrificed her to Satan for fame, but the ritual required a virgin, and since she wasn't a virgin, she came back to life. Jennifer then ends up kissing Needy, and Needy kisses her back. We are greeted with a minute-long close-up of their makeout session, which I found a bit gratuitous, but I'm also not complaining. Needy breaks the kiss and starts freaking out. She's not freaking out about the kiss. No, she's freaking out about Jennifer being covered in blood in her kitchen the other day. Which I get. Jennifer says that after she left Needy's house, she found Ahmet, the Indian exchange student that was at Melody Lane. Originally, they thought he had died. There actually was a moment where you see a beam fall and it looks like it fell on him. It turns out he survived, but no one saw him. Jennifer encounters him after leaving Needy's house. She asks him if anyone knows he's alive, and he shakes his head no. So she grabs him by the hand and says that she's going to take him somewhere, presumably for help, and then she eats him. This really felt like such a sad moment to me, because Ahmet was just the Indian exchange student, and it's, it's, it's fucked up that he died, okay? It's really fucked up. He's the brownest person in this movie, and he's technically the first kill, and it's just, it's, ugh. It's just eh. And also, I can understand why Jennifer ate him. I'm not condoning this action, by the way. But she was just murdered and brought back to life and is possessed by a hungry demon and she needed to eat. When an opportunity presents itself, like someone being presumed dead in an accident and you need to eat people well that person's the obvious choice once again shouldn't have done it 
but like it happened. There's a clear shift in how Needy views Jennifer because she focuses on the things wrong with Jennifer and never shows any sympathy for the traumatic situation Jennifer went through. And when I say she doesn't show any sympathy, I mean we go through Jennifer telling this traumatic story and after she mentions what happens with Ahmet, Needy immediately jumps to pointing out that eating people is wrong, there's something wrong with you, things like that. So she doesn't take the time to at least comfort her friend who was murdered. Like, I just, I want to think about that for a second. Imagine yourself in this situation, like I'm doing with myself. I think that if my best friend was in my bed with me, telling me of how a group of men kidnapped her and murdered her and that she came back to life with some kind of powers and those powers require her to eat people and one of the first casualties was an innocent person I want to say I would still at least give my friends some kind of sympathy for that situation. She doesn't really have a choice here. She doesn't have a choice on whether or not this demon is inside of her, just like she didn't have a choice on getting murdered. It just, it always made me sad that Needy immediately goes to attacking her friend who, yeah, did something messed up, but like, completely glosses over all the trauma that she just went through. Jennifer is hurt by this, and she once again lashes out instead of communicating. She mentions that Chip has been looking attractive to her, and reminds Needy of when they were children and would play boyfriend and girlfriend with each other. Needy tells her to leave, so she does. The next day, Needy tries talking to Chip about Jennifer, and he doesn't listen, even though what she's saying is a negative thing that he had previously agreed with. He wouldn't even humor Needy and let her lay out all of the information. He cares more about going to the school dance than Needy's feelings. I can understand being skeptical when your significant other comes to you and says, Hey, I think my best friend is possessed by a demon. But when your partner comes to you with some kind of information like this, I feel like a trait of being a good partner is at least listening to all of what they have to say. Even if you think it's crazy, at least listen and see what their thought process is. He doesn't do that. They end up having a bit of a fight and Needy technically breaks up with him, but says it's for his own safety. We see the three, Needy, Chip, and Jennifer, each respectively getting ready for the dance. Needy arrives first and is constantly looking out for Jennifer. She told Chip to stay home because it would be dangerous and he doesn't listen to her. On the way to the dance, there's this wooded area that Chip is walking through and Jennifer stops him on the way to the dance and brings back that emotional manipulation tactic to get him. Jennifer lies to Chip by telling him Needy was cheating on him with Colin and that's why she's been so emotional lately. He only lightly protests to this 
before he just accepts it as truth. From the person his girlfriend was trying to say was evil. And without talking to said girlfriend. And then he makes out with Jennifer. How delightful. Like, I understand that Needy technically broke up with him, but it's still just skeevy. Based on the previous scenes, I came to the conclusion the conclusion that Jennifer picks Chip to eat for four reasons. She's hungry, obviously. He was alone and easy to take to a secluded feeding spot unnoticed. And she's hurt by Needy's rejection and wants to get back at her. The telepathic link strikes again when Needy feels Jennifer kiss Chip. Jennifer and Chip go into this abandoned pool area. It's covered in vines, and for some reason there's still water in the pool, and it's really gross. They sneak into there to continue their makeout session. At least, that's what Chip thinks. Needy races to them, automatically knows where they are. Telepathic link. Jennifer intentionally waits until Needy is close enough to see her bite into Chip. This is a manipulative power move if I've ever seen one. Needy calls out Jennifer's insecurities because the blows must only go lower and never high in these movies. She mentions Jennifer's waning social status. She calls her a bad friend. And she mentions an eating disorder with a line about Jennifer taking laxatives to stay skinny. And for those of you that didn't know, taking laxatives to stay skinny is a sign, a major sign, of an eating disorder. I believe it would fall under bulimia because taking laxatives to keep expelling your food is a form of purging, but I am not versed in psychology. I am not trained in that field. I might be wrong, but I am aware that taking laxatives to stay skinny is disordered eating behavior. The two girls just keep trading these emotional blows and Chip actually has to be the one to stab Jennifer with a pole of some sort that was there. Maybe a pool skimmer that was left. To make her go away. And then he dies. Oh, I was totally devastated. Poor Chip. Anyway... Now it's Needy's turn for Murder Town. We're back to that scene with Jennifer lying in bed. She's watching TV. She's chewing on her hair. Needy crashes through the window and starts fighting with Jennifer. Through Jennifer's powers, they start floating in the air while continuing to fight. Eventually, Needy rips off Jennifer's necklace. The same necklace that she was chewing on at the beginning of the film. Their matching BFF necklace. Heartbreak is very evident on Jennifer's face. And they fall out of the air. Jennifer resigns herself to death. Why? Because if she didn't have Needy, life wasn't worth fighting for anymore. Needy stabs Jennifer. And she dies. Note, 
this is all very loud. And from the time Needy crashes into Jennifer's room, Mrs. Check takes three minutes to come in. I checked. And I understand movie time is weird, but there's no way that that fight sequence did not take any less than those three minutes. I'm not a parent, but I feel like if there was a very loud crashing sound coming from my teen daughter's room, it would take me much less than three minutes to get over there. Mrs. Check also walks in very casually, slightly annoyed for some reason, which honestly makes me just think she's a neglectful parent, and further explains Jennifer's behavior. Jennifer is hypersexual not only due to sexual abuse that she has suffered, but as a way to get attention because of neglectful parents. This happens a lot with children who are neglected. They figure out what's the best way to get attention by any means possible, and oftentimes it's through something considered negative, like being very sexually promiscuous. Now, that's not to say that people who are sexually promiscuous are victims of neglectful parents, but it is common to see these traits manifest themselves in children with neglectful parents. And there's a distinction with that that I wanted to make clear. Obviously, because Needy killed Jennifer and Mrs. Check walks in as Needy is pulling the box cutter out of Jennifer's chest, she ends up in the mental institution that we see at the beginning of the film. During the floaty fight, Needy was bitten by Jennifer, and that transferred some demon energy to her. She, while she is in solitary, she ends up floating all the way up to almost the ceiling where there's a window, and she kicks it out and breaks out of the institution. She's walking down a road, and she sees this little stream of water and at that little stream you see orange balls which ties back to the beginning of the movie that explains why the town devil's kettle got its name the waterfall the gorge hole in the rock that they didn't know where the end was they dropped orange balls down that hole when Jennifer was sacrificed by low shoulder, she was sacrificed by that hole. And they threw the knife that they killed her with in that hole. Next to these orange balls that Needy finds is the knife. So she takes it with her. Her main objective in that moment is to find low shoulder and violently murder them and she succeeds leaving them in their hotel room to be discovered by a group of fans poetic justice none of this would have happened if not for them and needy wouldn't have had to kill Jennifer. We've reached the concluding statements of our lecture today. Needy was definitely into Jennifer, but not the greatest friend at times. Her allowing low shoulder to just take Jennifer without insisting on going 
choosing to talk to Chip when Jennifer is trying to tell her about her powers, and her focusing on other topics when Jennifer is trying to talk about what happened to her. There's always talk about how Jennifer did Needy Dirty, which she did, don't get me wrong, but Needy did her dirty too. I'm not saying they're equally bad, but Needy isn't blameless here. Chip sucks. He's a bad boyfriend. He does not care about his girlfriend's feelings, treats her like a fleshlight during sex when she is clearly distressed, believes Jennifer's cheating lie with pitiful resistance, and then kisses Needy's best friend. Not cool. We need to cut Jennifer some slack. Jennifer is often seen as just this narcissistic mean girl. She makes bad decisions, yes. She can be emotionally manipulative to get what she wants, yes. She doesn't communicate properly with Needy, yes. But Jennifer is also clearly in love with Needy and doesn't know how to convey that healthily. She's a victim of childhood neglect and sexual abuse. She went through the ultra-traumatic experience of thinking she was going to be raped to instead being brutally murdered and then coming back to life possessed by a demon. Jennifer has some trauma, likely some post-traumatic stress disorder, and put up so many walls only to let Needy be the person she allow herself to be close to. Even then, there's still walls between them. Jennifer shouldn't have eaten the innocent. That is wrong. But I understand how she ended up there. And I understand why she behaves the way she does. Alright folks, that's all I have for you today. Tune in for next week's lecture where we will be discussing The Stepfather, a 1987 film that tells the story of a man seeking perfection by any means necessary. <laughs>